This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. the circumstances of the shooting don't know yet well that's been in the news lately we'd heard they were connected with the mike thevis organization can you confirm that yes in what way are they connected well right now i don't know i'm going to have to talk to federal strike force these people were definitely connected at least one of them were and i don't want to get into that too much right now you think there's a third person involved here or was it just between these two people well, it was definitely a third person. Or the, or, the, or the wife of one of the people who was... The here. girlfriend. Girlfriend. Yes. Mm-hmm. Were they both shot up there? Pardon, have I gotten off Absolutely. Door? Yes, absolutely. Roger Dean Underhill and Isaac Galanti have been gunned down in cold blood right on Underhill's riverfront property. Underhill had worried about being staked out, carrying a gun with him while he was at the property. Despite shotgun blasts to his head and neck, Roger did not immediately pass away that day, October 25, 1978. His fiancée, Irene, had found him, and he whispered faintly to her, one last time. They had planned to go into witness protection, and they had planned to be married on December 22nd. Underhill later died in the hospital. Just hours before he was gunned down, and unbeknownst to the media, and even Underhill, a federal court clerk had officially recorded Underhill's victory in his $10 million lawsuit against Thevis. The government had wanted Underhill's secret testimony on video, just in case he was murdered. But they were too late. Underhill was dead. But there was an open investigation, and authorities had three suspects in mind. Mike Thevis, Jeanette Evans, and a third suspect, still unidentified to the public. But none of the suspects have been spotted since the murder, and authorities were still searching. Paul Lieberman's harrowing connection with Roger Dean Underhill had finally ended with Underhill's murder. Lieberman had gotten too close, and those moments stuck with him years later. There wasn't much questioning in the mind of authorities of who would have had a motive to kill Roger Dean Underhill. When we heard that Underhill had been gunned down, the phrase we used, it was one of the moments where the business gets complicated. And my worst thought was that in the course of our professional activity, where we were going to bring in people we knew, was maybe irresponsible. You don't bring, I mean, we're not civilians, okay? We, the FBI agents, the criminals, because they're working through us, sending messages. We're not civilians, okay? You you become the kind of island of of sanity for people involved, because we're calm. We're not there to send them to jail or anything, or, you know, a lifeline to sanity. For someone like an underhill, he can spew to us. But it does get complicated, and this, this did affect me, that we had almost brought in truly a civilian, and it could have had dire repercussions. I mean, the poor fellow who was killed along with Underhill, I mean, that really is re- egregious in this. I mean, to some degree, we as a society do not take it seriously when criminals kill each other. 
it's the line in The Godfather, it's the life we've chosen, there are consequences to that. This poor guy who was looking at the land, I mean, it's a different level of sadness. Although I felt we, we like Underhill. Thevis and Evans were still on the loose. King and the FBI kept searching, often just a day or two behind the pair. King recalled the time when Thevis was on the run. I think he, he pictured himself as trying to be the top crook in the United States. He didn't want to go and hide forever. I think he enjoyed the occasional article that was in Balham in the papers and stuff like that. And he was kind of taunting us, I think. I never talked to him about it, but I think he thought he could stay hidden for a long time. He wasn't sneaking around with the disguise on. He was just pretty straightforward traveling around. I think he got stopped for speeding once or twice. And policemen on the on the street aren't looking for a top 10 fugitive. And I think he probably took pride in the fact that you know, he was a top 10 fugitive and all this stuff. There was too many people near the end that started to talk to us to let us know what he was doing. But while Phoebus already had fake passports to aid in his potential escape out of the country, it seemed he wasn't ready to make that huge leap. He also was very comfort-oriented. Someone who worked with him told us he wouldn't want to be in some dive in Mexico. He was a man who liked comfort. November 8, 1978. Bloomfield, Connecticut two weeks after the murder of Roger Dean Underhill and Isaac Galanti. Joseph Gazzo, president of Bloomfield Bank at the time, noticed something was funny with a customer who had come in that week asking for a large amount of cash. He came in Wednesday, requested that he would be in Thursday morning at 9.30. He wanted the $31,000 in cash. The answer question, why would you want cash? He said, well, I'm buying some real estate, and the person I'm dealing with is a little bit eccentric, and they want cash. What kind of account was it? What name was it under? It was a checking account, and the name was A.J. Evans. The opening of the account wasn't the big problem. The real problem is when they mailed in a check for deposit drawn on a South Carolina bank, the amount of $30,000 payable to A.J. Evans from A.J. Evans. I got a telephone call from the detective at the police department. This is Richard Foster, a former agent with the FBI. In 1978, he had been contacted by authorities about suspicious activity happening at a local Connecticut bank. He relayed this information about a customer named R.B. Evans who had opened a, an account at the bank with a very large starter check from a South Carolina bank. The bank was, of course, concerned that this might be potentially a kiting operation. The detective wasn't able to get any information from the bank, and he asked me to check on it. The man arrived at the bank that morning as planned, and Foster and a team walked into an office and started asking him questions. He was very well-dressed and well-groomed. He was wearing a uh, sport coat, necktie, slacks. I said he was well-groomed. He was wearing an expensive wristwatch. Describing him to you, he looked good. He looked like a respectable businessman, but his facial expression, his tone of voice, his eyes, 
it, to me, it was all a giveaway. I was just very, very suspicious of the man. In any event, as soon as the man walked in the door and we began to speak to him, my antenna went right up, and I, <laughs> I suspected there was something very, very wrong here. We went on to uh, question him about his identity and made some phone calls to North Carolina to confirm what he was telling us. We found out within minutes that he was lying and that he was not R.B. Evans. We didn't know who he was, but he was not R.B. Evans. From that moment, which was only five minutes after he walked into the bank, I had determined that there was no way I was going to let this man go until we knew who he was. He made a statement which was widely repeated later. He said, I might have expected the IRS to be here, but not the FBI. A week or so earlier, I had called the police department in Mebbin, North Carolina, and the chief of police down there told me that he did not know R.B. Evans personally, but that the town manager knew him very well. So when we had Evans in the bank, I asked him, I said, who, who in Mebbin can vouch for your identity? Well, he didn't know anyone. I said, well, I understand that you know the town manager. And he said, I know him but not very well. So he misidentified the gender of the town manager. So I made a phone call, got the town manager on the phone, and then I said to Evans, I said, here, uh, tell this person who you are and where you are. And he got on the phone and he tried to bluff it out. But then she got back on the phone with me and said, oh, Mr. Foster, that's not R.B. Evans. I wasn't so much concerned about the money at that point as I was with his identity. As I said, we almost immediately was convinced that, that he was not who he said he was, and so it just turned into a marathon of telephone calls to try to get him identified. Today, of course, the police and the FBI have communication systems and information sharing systems that would have made very short work of it. But in those days, things were still pretty rudimentary. In addition to asking questions of the man claiming to be R.B.J. Evans, Foster and the other authorities also scouted the area outside the bank for clues. Their suspicions were confirmed when they spotted a woman sitting in a car outside, alone. She was parked in a corner of the parking lot, so at least 30 or 40 feet from her car to any of the other cars. Detective and I approached the car, and she looked away. She didn't want to look at us. When I came up to the driver's side window, I waited for her to look at me, and she wouldn't look at me. I had to tap against the car window with my badge to get her to look up at me. And the car was absolutely chock full of luggage. I don't think you could have seen out the rear window. Some of the luggage was clearly hers. It was embossed with her initials, J-E, but it had stick-on airline luggage tags in the name Sally Green. You have to remember that in those days of relative innocence, you could still get on an airline without showing identification. So she had flown from Atlanta to Hartford under the name Sally Green. The woman in the car was not Sally Green. It was Jeanette Evans. Of course, we found Jeanette Evans waiting in a car outside in the parking lot, and uh, she stumbled all over herself, the poor thing. We already knew that R.B. Evans was in the bank, and her name was Anna Jeanette Evans, and yet, rather astoundingly, each of them claimed not to know the other. But when we got them 
together, then they, they changed their story two more times. It was almost comical. Well, for her name, and what's your relationship to the man inside the bank? Well, I don't know anyone inside the bank. I'm sorry, but you both have the same name. You're here for with a car and South Carolina license plates, and you can't tell us why you're here. And then she admitted that, well, she was here with that man, that she had met him in a saloon in Charleston, I believe. They had a fling, and now they were here in Connecticut. In other words, it was a sort of a, a romantic sort of a thing. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. He briefly took her into the bank. When he saw her, he said, oh, I see you found my sister. Then it changed again. I said, well, she's already told me that you have a romantic relationship. Well, yes, yes, we do. We've been married for eight years. It just went on like this. So I said, well, we're not going to solve this here. We're going to the police station and you're detained. He understood that he was legally detained. He wasn't going anywhere. She said she didn't want to talk to us anymore, so we didn't question her. But he was still trying to talk his way out of it. And as I said, he would selectively answer questions about where he had been and where he lived and, and so on. But he eventually asked for an attorney. He engaged a private attorney from a, a very highly regarded law firm in the area. And that attorney came to the police station and was basically telling me uh, very politely that you're going to have to either arrest my client or let him go. So it got pretty stressful. We made phone calls to the wife of the real R.B. Evans, who refused to cooperate, hung up the phone, and then left the house. And by the time that I could send the police department to her house, she was gone and wasn't available. So I knew that she knew something she didn't want to tell us. We also made phone calls to Jeanette Evans' family in the Atlanta area. They knew that Jeanette and a man whom they knew to be R.B. Evans so it was very suspicious, the conversations we had with those people. Some of them were good people. They didn't want to lie to us, but they, they weren't going to tell us, and I, I could sense that. So again, I knew there was something wrong here. I was under a lot of pressure. This defense attorney, first of all, he called the, the chief of police in Bloomfield and indicated to them that false arrest or a false detention could result in a civil lawsuit. So the police department basically told me, you can continue to use our space here, but this is on you. When I met him and spoke with him, first of all, we had four, five, six hours where I was trying to figure out just who he was. And we were dancing around. He was selectively answering questions. He was being congenial. He and I were sort of verbally and politely fighting it out with each other. 
I called the assistant United States attorney that was requesting a warrant, anything, lying to the FBI, anything so that I could get this man's fingerprints and fax them to Washington and find out who he was. I wasn't getting a lot of support from the United States Attorney's Office. They were reminding me that there was a limit to how long I could hold someone like this. I pretty much had the feeling that if I let this man go, I was going to regret it. I was in for a penny, in for a pound. I was pretty determined I was going to hold on to him until I knew who he was. But what happened was one of these people called somebody in the Thebus organization and one of Thebus's attorneys, and somehow it very quickly got to the FBI in Atlanta. We got a call from the Atlanta FBI saying, are you holding somebody in Bloomfield, Connecticut? Could it possibly be Mike Thebus? Then I looked up the wanted flyer for Mike Thebus, and uh, that was the end of that. At this point, he still had his attorney at, at the police station. He and Jeanette Evans and the attorney were sitting in a room together, and I walked in with a wanted flyer and said, Mr. Evans, I've got some bad news for you. I'm holding a wanted flyer here for a man named Michael George Thevis, and it certainly looks like you. And he smiled and said, yes, you got me. I'm Mike Thevis. His attorney was astounded when he saw the wanted flyer with escaped federal prisoner, Rico, murder, arson, conspiracy. <laughs> he couldn't get out of there fast enough. Now that Foster and the rest of the team knew that the man in front of them was, in fact, Mike Thevis, details started to spill out quickly. Thevis had a duplicate driver's license from North Carolina with his photograph on it in the name R.B.J. Evans. The real R.B. Evans was the brother of Jeanette Evans. And he was carrying several credit cards in the name A.J. Evans. Those were actually Anna Jeanette Evans's cards that she had taken out with her initials, and her initials matched Thebus, or Thebus's identity. I saw on the wanted flyer that he had used explosive devices in the past. So after we arrested him, before we left the Bloomfield Police Department, I said to him, in the presence of his attorney, I said, Mike, it says on here that, you know, you've used explosive devices in the past. You know I'm going to have to drive this car to the federal building. Is it going to blow up and hurt anybody? He laughed and he said, no, he says, I've got a, about a half a million in cash in that car and a million dollars in jewelry, but no explosives. There was at least the one gun, perhaps two, but at least one. We found a key to a rental locker. He had a great deal of furniture and personal items in the locker. There was also evidence in that locker that was very important to the government at his later racketeering trial. We found a very lengthy grand jury transcript of the testimony of Roger Underhill, which should not have been in Davis's possession. I, I'm sure the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office worked out how that came to be in his possession. In that transcript, Underhill was talking about homicides that Davis had committed, and it gave the government a motive for the killing of Underhill. Current Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal was a young district attorney at the time and was there to speak to the press that night. 
their version was, or her version was, as stated before the magistrate, that he was going to buy a home here. That she flew in last night and happened to run into him. You don't buy that, though? I wouldn't want to comment on their version at this point. But you're smiling. Well, I think it's a uh, version, as I stated before the magistrate, that requires some leap of the imagination to accept. Mr. Blumenthal, what happens now as far as this case is concerned? What happens to Mr. Thevis? What happens to Ms. Evans? Well, so far as Mr. Thevis is concerned, he will be held at least overnight in Hartford at the uh, Hartford Correctional Center, the Hartford Jail. He's been returned to the custody of the Attorney General, which means that he's once again a federal prisoner. He is uh, under indictment in Atlanta, Georgia, in connection with various federal crimes. I guess the question is, how big a deal is this for your office, for example, to be the ones that are kind of in the forefront at this point? We are really not taking credit for it, although we happen to have been put temporarily in the spotlight as a result of the pure coincidence of their being here. It really wasn't our effort that found them. It was very much the effort of uh, a local FBI agent. Joseph Gazzo, president at that Connecticut bank, couldn't believe a fugitive had been caught in this small town. What did you think when you found out that this was somebody on the FBI's 10 most wanted list? I'm saying they got to be careful when they come to Bloomfield, right? I just, uh, I was surprised, but I just don't know why he picked on Bloomfield. I still like to know why you imagine someone like that living in our town. After he was arrested, uh, we had a a very lengthy evidentiary hearing in Hartford went on for more than a week. During the breaks and, you know, at lunch in the late afternoon, Thevis would be sitting in a marshal's lockup in the federal building. And one day, one of the marshals came to me and said, uh, Thevis says he wants to talk to you. I said, I can't talk to him. He's represented. There's a hearing going on. And the marshal said something to the effect that uh, Thevis has already overridden his lawyer and it's basically, uh, I won't tell if you won't. I was curious that we wound up, uh, he and I, having uh, oh, three or four lengthy conversations. He's sitting on a folding chair in the hallway talking to him through the bars. He just needed somebody to talk to. He had been on the run for so long and couldn't talk to anybody. I guess he thought that I would, had testified truthfully and had treated him more or less fairly. We just talked about his life and his family and his travels, and occasionally when the conversation would necessarily turn to the case and the investigation and what he had done. And then we would sort of talk in hypotheticals, because it was understood that, you know, all of it was off the record. That was one of his fatal flaws. He talked too much. I hadn't yet heard all of the details of what he had done in Atlanta. I knew the charges, but I hadn't heard any of the details. With me, he was a very congenial sort of a guy. I learned long ago that you don't get emotional in cases like this. You have to treat people like human beings if you want them to talk to you. We were sitting in the holding cell and we were talking about his father. And he was telling me about his father and what a nice guy he was. He had some health problems at the time and how his father knew absolutely nothing about what he was doing or what he had done. And then somehow the name, I didn't bring it up, somehow he himself into the agent, the Atlantic agent, Paul King. I still remember it. His eyes and his facial expression and his demeanor, his body language, everything just slowly morphed like Kenneth Branagh playing Hamlet. And this hatred came out. He talked about how he wished that King could burn in hell and, and a lot worse. And it was chilling. I interviewed quite a few 
stone cold killers and hitmen. So I, this wasn't my first rodeo, but it was chilling. Uh, it just left me absolutely professionally certain that if this guy hadn't been caught, he would one day have made an attempt on King's life. He didn't want to talk about his children. I asked about his family. He's divorced and didn't want to talk, mention any more about his wife. In fact, he kind of bragged that he had taken all of her jewelry and we recovered it, you know, when we arrested him. I was surprised that he didn't want to talk about his children. And when I mentioned that I had three of my own, he'd be just, okay. And he went right on. He'd rather talk about baseball than, uh, than his family or mine or, or children. It was just like they were, I don't know, objects that, you know, just small people that lived in his house. It was surprising. I mean, I, we didn't dwell on it. I didn't question him anymore about it. But yeah, I didn't get the impression that he was all that interested in his own kids. So many years later... Foster clearly had strong thoughts about Thevis. That business of his pornography business was a, a golden goose. It was practically a license to print money. If he had just had some business sense and operated his business honestly, if you will, he may have been fine. When he went after his competitors with arson and lethal violence, he really gave up all pretense of being a businessman, invited the government to go after him as a gangster. Once again, Thevis couldn't help himself. And of course, he talked too much. He gave away damaging information to his Confederates, to me, even to his cellmates. First day in the lockup in Hartford, he bragged to his cellmate that while he and Jeanette had been momentarily left alone in the police department, he had disposed of a safety deposit box key by dropping it inside a wall in the police department. So I said, well, thank you very much. I went back to the police department the next day, dropped a magnet into the wall, and recovered a key to a safety deposit box in another alias in North Carolina that we may never have found. And the box contained another $200,000 in cash. He doesn't hesitate to flaunt his money. We didn't talk about the pornography business as being savory or unsavory, but he'd like to brag about how much money he had made. A few weeks after our conversation, I received an envelope in the mail from Agent Foster. In it was an original copy of the FBI's most wanted poster of Mike Thevis. Foster kept copies of the poster in his files for all these years, and now I had my own copy in front of me. At the top, it said, Escaped Federal Prisoner, Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, Murder, Arson, Mail Fraud, Conspiracy. There are nine fingerprints. One was missing. The poster said the first two joints of his right ring finger were amputated. It said he had scars on his face and his legs. That he often walked with a limp and with a cane. There are three headshots of Thebus. One clean-shaven with a black shirt. In the other two, he has a goatee and a wild-patterned shirt, so obviously from the 70s. In one of them, he shows off a big smile. He's described as corporation president, newsstand operator, publisher, and restaurant operator. But in November 1978, one word best described Thebus. Caught. 
There's only two episodes left in the season. Chapter 9, To Rome for Everything, is up next. You won't want to miss it. Gangster House is created, written, and hosted by me, Jason Hoke, and is a production of Imperative Entertainment. Shane Freeman is lead engineer with additional editing and production support by myself and Jasmine Cross with audio mixing provided by Resonate Recordings. Recording sessions at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta. Claire Martin and Elizabeth Egan are story editors. Cover art and design by Trevor Eiler. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. Original music score by Brandon Bush. Time is Winding Up, performed by Dorothy Norwood and written by Kenneth Allen Mims, Dorothy Norwood, and Lois Jean Sneed. Originally released in 1974 by GRC. The publisher is Act One Music Company, Inc. Music licensed from Gin Music Group. Love the songs from Gangster House? Check out the new playlist on Spotify. Just search Gangster House. Some segments recorded using actors to recreate scenes based on this true story. For more information, exclusive photos, or tips on this story, visit gangsterhouse.com or visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Gangster House. If you love the show, tell a friend and leave a review. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. Thanks for listening. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.